Thank you for joining this sermon podcast from Cornerstone Fellowship in Forest City, North Carolina. We hope that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message. Cornerstone exists to glorify God as we passionately pursue Him and make Him known through worship, discipleship, fellowship, and outreach. Here's today's message. Good to see all of you here. Thank you so much for coming. We're in 2 Peter. I think we're going to say that a lot for the next while, but we are in 2 Peter. We're in chapter 1, and I will begin again today in verse 1 with our reading. We will begin to pick up deeper in the epistle as we read further and we preach deeper into it, but we will go back to verse 1 again, at least for today. 2 Peter chapter 1. Beginning in verse 1. Simeon or Simon Peter, a servant, a slave, a bond servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. You were Gentiles, but all of that's been erased in Christ Jesus. And how did you attain this? It was by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. That is the invitation of God to come and participate in his divine nature. And having escaped from the corruption of that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith, and he will give us seven building blocks. We've looked at five. We'll look at the other two today. Supplement your faith with number one, virtue. And virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective are unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our 
Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always, I won't let up, he says, I will intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of, again, reminder. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and last of all, and he says, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you will be able at any time to once again recall these things. He gave us seven building blocks in this passage. We've looked at the first five. Number one was virtue, and we talked about the fact that that's a word that literally means moral value. The Greeks in the ancient world used this word to talk about the fulfillment of a thing. You are doing what God called you to do. You are glorifying God in the way He would have you to. He said that's building block number one. Number two was knowledge. That's the ability to express truth. If you don't know what two and two is and that it equals four, and it still does, I don't know how much longer, but it does for now. If you don't have knowledge, then you cannot express that as a truth. And if you don't know Jesus, you can't talk about Him either. You may know Him as, a, as, a, as an ancient character who lived. You may even believe He's a real person. You may see Him as a great example. You may revere Him as an awesome teacher, but until you know Him as your Savior, until you have that personal relationship with Him, you have nothing to share, you have nothing to say, you are ineffective and unfruitful. He also talked about self-control. I am no doubt my greatest challenger Controlling myself. I have very little problem with trying to control others. I I want them to do what I want to do. It is me that I have the hardest time with trying to get me to do what I know God would have me do. But that's a building block that I need. Steadfastness. Eupomene, hypo is, or hypo is under, like hypodermic, under the skin. And mono is a word that means to remain, to remain under, like a beast under a load, carrying a a heavy burden, remaining under, is steadfast. He said, learn how to remain under. It's easy to wander off when you get discouraged, when folks don't show up, or promises are broken, or things get tough, or it gets boring. Some of us can't stand boring. We'd rather be tortured than to be bored with anything. We can't finish books. We barely finish movies. Uh, but we, we have no steadfastness. We, we need that. And then godliness. And this was a word, Eusebia, which means to worship well. You know how we worship. We worship by showing that God has value. 
when you want to show your wife that she has value, you, uh, uh, you might buy her something, you may treat her in some way, you are showing that she has value in your life, you make her a priority in your life. And it is the same way with God. Through my giving, through my testimony of my time, the way I spend my life and live my life, I can say whatever I want to, but it's not my words. It's not singing that worships Him. It's not playing an instrument well that worships Him. But to worship well, my life indicates that He is priority number one. Then verse 7, our last two building blocks. He says, and godliness add with that brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Brotherly affection is a word we're familiar with, the city of Philadelphia. I've never been there. I've seen some newscasts from there. Not sure that it's named correctly, but... Uh, Philadelphia is a word that means brotherly love. It is an affection kind of love, a camaraderie type of love. And then add with that agape. But this brotherly affection, of course we know agape is going to be our, the climax of this whole list. But brotherly affection is so important. When I met with the men this morning in the office to pray, I thought about the fact that these men are from different parts of, of the world, different parts of, uh, of, of, of the country, uh, at least. Uh, some are Yankees, you know? And, 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 and so, but it, that doesn't matter. I'm an old redneck hick from down south. But we are brothers in Christ. I can't read that, Sharon, so there's no need. I think it said amen, though. But, but that's who I am. And and so when Sharon tells me that uh, she needs to go get her khakis, I'm thinking it's a pair of pants, but it's something she starts her car with. Okay? See, that's what you get. But I'm just saying it doesn't matter. We're, it, we have something that draws us together. I would have never met you. I'd have never met my wife had it not been for God. But guess what? I'd have never met God had it not been for God. So He has bonded us together and we have that affection. You know, I was thinking about it this week. I have very few friends and I have a couple of really good ones. Guys that love me to death and, and I love them to death. But I don't have many outside this fellowship. You are my friends. And, and, and man, you, it's, it's more than just we attend church together. You are my brothers, and man, when I see you down, it, 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 it burdens my heart when I see joy, and God blesses you in your life. It's a blessing to me as well. That's brotherly affection. And it's not a repeat for him to add the brotherly affection, and you may have it translated as brotherly love. Some translations do. But then the word love, and that is the word agape. Agape, as we already know, is a very honest love. Uh, it doesn't seek its own. It doesn't rejoice in evil. It runs contrary to this idea in our culture today that love is love. 
even if it is a moral catastrophe, if it's based on true love, our culture will tolerate it. And it will judge harshly anybody who criticizes it. Well, but they love each other. And, and that's what matters. And no, uh, when it comes to God, uh, godly love, biblical love, love is not love. We're told to not love the world. There are a lot of things that we are not supposed to love. This may be a radical example, but there are men who love young children, and they'll say it's love, but I can tell you it's anything but that. It is morally uh, corrupt, and we know better than that. So love is not just love, and agape helps us with that. There are four kinds of love, and I, I know we've covered these before, but I want to use them to illustrate what agape love is really about. In, in the New Testament, we have the word stergo, and we don't actually see that word. But when Paul writes to Timothy and he says, in the end times men will become unloving, he uses astergo there. It puts the, uh, the, the little A before it that negates the, that the fact that it's love. It's unloving. Like theist is you believe in God. Atheist means you don't believe in God. Astergo means that you don't love even your own family. So he says in the end, people that you should love, people will get to where they don't even love them. It's not that they just don't love their neighbor as commanded by Christ. They won't even love members of their own family. People to whom they have obligations. People that may have blessed them in their life or raised them as children they will get to the point that they love themselves so much that they don't even love their own family. But Sturgo is a kind of love that, that it is evoked by an outside agent, my family. I, I, I love my family. I love my kids. I love my grandkids. Uh, that family love is a powerful thing, but, but it is a love that is evoked by the family out there. Eros is another kind of love. We get our word erotic from it. And it is evoked by an object. It, it might be a sexual object. It could be uh, something like pornography that attracts us. It could be, though, things like cute puppies. We, we love those. Oh, look at that. I, oh, I want one. And you already have six, so what are you going to do with another one? But we are drawn to things like that. That is eros. That's an erotic kind of love that is evoked by some kind of object. You'll notice in our world today, that's a powerful kind of love. And, and, and people, when they see certain things, boy, it just fires up their emotions. And sometimes those emotions are toxic. Let me just give you a, a great example an abortion doctor can perform an abortion in his office and come right out the door after killing an unborn human being and maybe butchering that child to get all the pieces out. They usually count them to make sure they have them all. And then he can walk right out the door and he can kick a puppy off the steps of his office and they will take him to jail and the world will hate him for it. Why? 
Well, it's because we don't have to see the baby. And we don't want to see the baby. We love the puppy as we can see the puppy. It is a kind of love that permeates our society today. It, it is not a genuine kind of love. It's where our emotions run rampant. And, and this week I remember watching one of the hearings in Washington and someone of the a Congress lady was going to play a video from a doctor uh, that was going to describe what uh, this transition surgery is like to go from male to female or vice versa. And, and when the video started, there was uh, just a big ruckus. And then all of a sudden, every Democrat in there got up and walked out the door. I don't want to see it. They don't show abortions in Washington. They won't show them on the History Channel. But they'll show you little dogs that need a home. And people will make donations. Some of those organizations are crooked they do nothing but raise money, but they know how to do it. They strike on your emotions. That eros, it is evoked by object. Uh, philia is the noun form of phileos or phileo. And it is evoked by that mutual camaraderie. And I, I do love that. I, I, like, I like my buddies, man. And, and uh, I, I like hanging out with you guys and... And the family that we have here, even though we're not kin in the idea of Sturgo, but we are, we are children of God. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And I, I enjoy that. I, I, that. I am drawn to you because of that. We may have a, a lot of different ideas about things. We may come from different backgrounds. We may not like a lot of things. We may not have a lot of things in common. But we have one thing in common, and that's our relationship with Jesus Christ. And then agape. Here's where agape is so different. It originates in the agent, not in the object. When God says he loves us, it is not because we're cute. Agape love originates with the one doing the loving. So when God says, I love you, it's not because he felt sorry for us. It wasn't pity that we needed. It was forgiveness that we needed. So don't forget that. It wasn't because you were pretty. And even though you, you, you might be, you might just be off the chart with that. That's great, but that's not why God loves you. Uh, and be glad of that, because if you live long enough, um, it'll take a lot of work to keep you that way. But agape originates with the agent doing the loving, or the one that is doing the loving. It is not evoked by the object. So uh, God doesn't love us because of who or what we are but because of who He is. And let me just say this. Don't ever forget that. I, I know we say that a lot around here, but please remember something. A lot of times we think of horizontal types of love to try to understand God. And we know that as a father, I'm supposed to show my children and my grandchildren how God loves as a 
father. And that's important. God loved as a mother hen when he looked at Jerusalem and said, I just brought you under my wings like a mother hen does her chicks if you would have just let me. But those are horizontal models that we think about. But remember something, not everybody had a good father. Some people had fathers that deserted them and mothers that abandoned them or family that abused them in some way. So understand something, if that's how you have been measuring the love of God, maybe your father was cold and ineffectionate and, and didn't know how to love. Let me tell you, make sure you understand first and foremost that God loves you vertically. He loves you not because of anything in your life or because of who you are, but because of who He is. And that will never, ever change. It won't ever change. Matter of fact, in John 17, Jesus said, to the Father. The Son of God looks at the Father. He is praying in John 17. And He says, Father, You have loved them with the same love with which You love Me. The love that was present in the Godhead before there was even a universe is the same love with which God loves His children. Now that's a powerful word. So I don't care who should have loved you and didn't. I know that's painful. I've lived some of that. But I can tell you who does love you that shouldn't. And that's God. And He always will. And it will never, ever change. Let that truth set you free. Man. Let it make you feel sorry for and have pity on people who treated you like trash. Let it make you pray that one day they'll know the love that you experience from your Father in heaven. Let's say one more thing about this agape love. It's dangerous. It's dangerous. As a matter of fact, it's a dangerous trigger for the emotional, emotionally needy people. Because it's too honest. Agape love is the kind of love that says, look, you've got no business going down the highway that fast. You're driving like a fool. And that can be from a heart of love. You, you, you can get that from a heart of love. Or you've got no business uh, uh, living with your boyfriend. You're not married. That's, agape love will, will bring those things around because, again, it's not... It's not responding to that relationship. You not being my friend anymore doesn't threaten my agape love for you. I can risk that because if I really love you the way God loves you and the way He loves me, I'll be willing to say whatever it is that I have to say. So be warned, agape love can be a trigger. It's it's too authentic for a lot of people. It's, It's just... Too trustworthy. And, and I'll tell you this, and I, I, don't, I really don't mean to whine. I, I hope it doesn't come across that way. But I, I feel as a pastor a lot of times like the guy that pointed out the crack and the structure on the roller coaster at Carowinds. That's exactly how I feel sometimes. All those people that had waited in line 
They'd done polished off two giant pretzels and four gallons of Coke. Just waiting in line to get on the thing. And they shut it down. He could have kept it to himself and said nothing. But he pointed out something that was potentially disastrous. And I'm not saying anybody got mad at him about it. But I will tell you this. In other areas of life, you can point to things. You can note things straight from the Scriptures that are going to lead to disaster. Things that God has already said that He will not bless. You can have the best intentions and the most loving heart in the world and some people will just be mad that they didn't get to ride. They'll say, well, who are you? You, That guy already wrote it. They could look at him and say, well, you got to write it. We didn't. Now, for me personally, one, I'm not crazy about roller coasters. I'd have been more than happy to get out of line and said, yeah, if it's about to fall over, I believe I'll go over here to these tubs that just go around or something. I can tell you, our world, it doesn't matter if you're telling them the truth. We would get offended in our world today at lifeguards. No matter what their motives are, we don't want to be told what to do. We don't like that. We feel like somebody's trying to cramp us. But let me remind you of something. God told Ezekiel in chapter 3 and in verse 30, in chapter 33, chapter 3 and chapter 33, you'd be able to remember that easily. He said, I have appointed you as a watchman on the wall, Ezekiel. You didn't ask for the job and you didn't want the job. And he didn't say when the enemy comes. No, he said, if I come to bring the sword against my people because of their disobedience, and you do not warn them as a guard on the wall, if you're asleep on the job or can't bring yourself to to stop people right in the middle of their life, or if you feel like that's just too personal or you're minding their business Ezekiel he says I will still bring the sword and I still will shed their blood but I will require their blood at your hand because you were irresponsible as a watchman on the wall I can tell you that'll whittle down the number of relationships you have really fast when God calls you to be one of them. I want to say this before we move on. I told you we weren't going to get in a hurry. I, I think when I think about love, just the concept of we should love each other. and What does that mean? It reminds me that Christianity is so misunderstood. You ever feel like that? You ever talk to people and you realize you don't have a clue what Christianity is, do you? You don't even, you're not, I'm not telling you you need to get in church. I'm talking about a relationship with Christ. I'm talking about something totally different. You know, just, just hear me out. There's a couple of things that I think we ought to tell people. And I'm ready to tell them. I think we ought to tell people sometimes it's okay when it comes to Christianity to say that you're not one. 
Now, it's not okay not to be one. We can't tell them that because not being one is a terrible thing. That means you live lost and die lost and spend eternity lost without God. But I think it's time we told people, look, if you don't believe what Christians believe, stop feeling obligated to say, well, I'm a Christian, but. I mean, you don't tell people you're a Muslim. And I bet you believe some things that Muslims believe. I mean, they believe in a lot of the Old Testament and things like that. So you'd have some commonality there, but you don't tell people you're a Muslim. As a matter of fact, some of the people that get so offended if you question their Christianity would be angry at me if I were walking around pretending to be a Muslim. And say, you shouldn't tell people you're a Muslim. You don't even believe what Muslims believe. Or you could take Hinduism and and, and you... You're not a Hindu, and you know you're not a Hindu. You don't believe what Hindus believe. You may have some commonalities. They may be some things that, that they take great pride in, in their culture and in their religion, that you would as well. But you and I both know you're not a Muslim and you're not a Hindu. What we've not figured out yet is that you're not a Christian either. So just say it. I, I know you're thinking, man, Mark, you, that, I, you're just talking about how few friends you have. I, I'm just telling you, I'm, I'm ready to say, look, we will always pray that you will become a Christian because we love you and we never want to see anybody live and die and go to hell lost without Jesus Christ. But Jesus said explicitly that most people are going to go to hell. Most people are not going to believe. That's why broad is the way that leads to death. And narrow is the way that leads to life. And few, he said, be that find that narrow way. I think it's time some folks just stood up and said, I'm really not a Christian. I think Jesus is a great guy. Good teacher. I might even believe he's the son of God. But you have so personalized your version of Christianity. It's no longer recognizable. Neither is it biblical. Quit feeling obligated to say you're a Christian. And quit leaving here hating us. Because as Christians we have to stand for the truth as given in the Word of God. Respect us, and we'll respect you. I almost think it might bring some people to conviction. Just to tell them, you're free. All you do is carp on Facebook about Christians and how you don't believe this, and you don't believe that, and you don't like this, and you don't like that, and you went to church, and you got mad about this, and then you went back and really got mad about something else, bragging about how long you've been out of church. I quit. We worship at home. We whatever, blah, blah, blah. Listen, get over it and just say it. And quit hating us. For not bending and twisting and compromising to satisfy your personalized version of faith. I think a second thing we ought to let people say, <laughs> tell people it's okay to say you don't believe the Bible. I, I know a lot of people who claim they would say they are Christian, but they don't believe that Jesus really is the divine Son of God. They believe that He came and 
and, and that he got in trouble because of his, his social work or whatever. And he got into it with the Romans over some stuff and, and he made the Jews mad. But about all they ever see in Jesus is someone that attacked those old religious people. Boy. Jesus really showed them. And i tell you what, if he was here today, he'd be showing them now. And they treat Jesus like he was some kind of hippified uh, social justice warrior. But other than that, that's about all they see in him. When you tell them that Jesus said, not Paul, not Peter, but Jesus said, most people are never going to see the kingdom of heaven. Well, I, I, just, I just don't know about that. Why don't you know about it? It says it in the Bible. I think some people ought to just fess up and say, we'll have more respect for you. Just say it. I don't believe that the entire Word of God is a valid source of truth. Doesn't mean I don't believe some of it, but there's some of it that I don't. And guess what? This is going to tickle you to death. There are churches out there that because your personal beliefs are important to you, they'll be important to them. That ought to just about send you over the edge. Old preacher, what's his name, is going to tell you that is all right. If you see the resurrection of Jesus as well, it's figurative and symbolic or whatever. It's just, you just come on, we're all okay. Bring, it's like bring your own God night, you know. We're going to have a party, bring your own God, bring your own faith, bring your own version of Christianity. They're all welcomed here. For some people, they'll have a hard time controlling themselves when they finally find a church that will show appreciation for their unbiblical worldview. I hope as long as there's breath in my lungs that you will not find that here. I hope that as long as there's breath in these lungs that what you will hear from this pulpit is truth. Not truth as described by me or affirmed by me but truth as affirmed by the Word of God. Verse 8, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being two things, ineffective and unfruitful, in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If they, you have these things, and they are increasing, so there is some growth expected. So if you're growing in these things, he says, first of all, it'll keep you from being ineffective. Um, I hate it that Brother Kenneth Davey couldn't be here today because he's having to help take care of his father. We need to pray for them. They've been sick. But the word for ineffective here is the word argos. If any of you are welders, you know about the gas called argon, and that is exactly where the word comes from. Argon is a noble gas in that it will not interact with other gases. So when you weld, this, this, this is free, okay? I'm not even charging for this. But when you weld, 
with a wire welder, you hook up an argon tank and it sprays argon on that well and it keeps oxygen away from it and it stops oxidation because the argon will not mix with or interact with oxygen and so it suffocates that area and you can make a much better well. Somebody say amen. I know. <laughs> But I love that word, argos. It's an inert gas. You know what the definition of inert is? I mean, I had an idea, but I, I just loved it when I looked it up. I think it was Webster's Dictionary. I don't know. Inertia. You know what that means? A tendency to do nothing and to remain unchanged. That's what inertia is. Are you an inertia Christian? <laughs> The tendency to do nothing and to remain unchanged. Now, the word in the Greek for work is ergo. But if you take the privative, and that's that little A I keep talking about, and put in front of it, it's not ergo, it's argos. And ergos is the noun form. So instead of ergos, it's argos. And so you go from work to no work. You don't do anything. You become ineffective. You don't mix with the others around you you just come and as far as what you do and think about this Christian we should all ask ourselves from time to time if I wasn't at Cornerstone what would it be like what what kind of hole would I leave if I pulled out today what are some things that would not get done what's some leadership that they would have to uh, fill a void for or, or or what are some other things that they have counted on because I have been faithful in that. They've never had to uh, wonder would it get done. I took that job and, and, and it's not real noticeable, but it would be noticeable if I stopped tomorrow. What's going on in your life right now that you can say if I wasn't here because I don't just come and sit and do nothing and remain unchanged. No. I come to do something. That brings us to another word. He says, and don't be unfruitful. The word for fruit is karpos. This is the word akarpos. It has the privative A in front of it. It means you don't bear fruit. There's, there's no fruit. There are certain trees that just don't bear fruit, and, and there are other trees that do. And so I can tell you, if you don't bear fruit, then you become worthless and ineffective. And you got to remember something. It's never going to be your fruit. It is the fruit that you allow the Holy Spirit to bring about in your life. Paul says, fruit like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. He said, those are the things that, that begin to grow up in your life when the Holy Spirit is at work in you. He says these things need to be there and they need to increase. So it's not just my profession of faith, it's my progression of faith. How am I doing now? And what am I doing now that better glorifies God than what I was doing a year ago? Am I closer to Him right now than I've ever been? Heard a preacher say one time, if you're not closer to God right now than you've ever been, you're backslid. Well, I, I guess that's true. <laughs> Where are you? You know, when we're kids, we 
have this little mark we put on the door, our door face or the wall somewhere. It shows our height, and kids get all excited about it. I hope if you have one of those walls in your house, you never, ever paint that thing. You're going to love that wall when they're 40. They're so excited. I'm three foot nothing now. It points to growth. We ought to back up to the wall spiritually sometime. See where we were last year. Where are we now? Verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind. Having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Myopic religion, I call it. Myopia is being so nearsighted. You can only see things that are really close to you. Nearsighted is what I see when I only see what is near me. It will make you make foolish statements like with lost people right here. Why in the world are we going to India? And, and why are we sending money to Fort Myers and a team to Fort Myers in Nicaragua? What are you doing all the way down there, Lee? And why are we worried about lost people in Macedonia? And why are we trying to reach Muslims in Washington State? And and why are, are we putting money into CIT and ministries like that to send missionaries all over the world while we've got lost people right here? Well, you can stop by their house on the way home today and tell them about Jesus. I hope you will. But we get really nearsighted sometimes. We get so blind, and once we're blind, and he says that's what it leads to is blindness. He told the church at Laodicea, he said, you think you got it together, but you are naked, and you are poor, and you are wretched, and you are blind. When you're blind, the only, you can only see as far as you can reach. You know the table's there because you can reach it, but you don't know the podium is over there, or the fan, or the railing, because you, you can only see with your hand. And sometimes we as Christians, we get really blinded and we don't see the rest of the world. You know, I think, secondly, and he nails it here, he says, have you forgotten or having forgotten this blind person, this person that is always arguing about why do we go everywhere and all over the world tell people about Jesus. He says, he has forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Man, don't ever forget that. Don't ever forget that somebody told you about Jesus. I know we mean it in an innocent way, but when people talk about, I found Jesus, you didn't find Jesus. Jesus was not lost. You were lost. And He found you, and He probably found you through some person. Somebody told you about Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you, one of the saddest things in the world that I see and some of our churches sometimes will have people who will come and we will win them to the Lord maybe or nurture them as infantile Christians. And, and then later on, maybe somebody will do something that they don't approve of and because the church didn't react the way they thought we should have, they up and leave. I think they forgot something. We didn't bring up their past. We didn't throw their past in their face. We loved them, forgave them, nurtured them, discipled them. Don't ever forget that you've had your sins forgiven, friend. 
Somebody told you about Jesus. There are three billion people. I'm certain that's an estimate. Three billion people in this world. Three billion that have never even heard of Jesus Christ. You know, it's hard to talk about big numbers in the United States. We, we owe so much money and we've got so much debt. And so when we throw numbers around around here, it's like trillions. And then we go to making them up. Gazillion. Man, that's a lot. Do you realize just a billion? If you started right now and you were going to count to a billion, and you were going to say a number one per second, it would take you 33 years to count to a billion. It would take you almost a hundred years, in other words, just to name every person right now on this planet that has never heard of Jesus Christ. Let's don't become nearsighted and blind. One of the things I love about our church, I love, I love when we talk about missions and when we support missions. And I'm like Pastor D says, when these Muslims get up there, my hearing's so bad I can't hardly make out what they say. But I can always make out the first part. And it is, you know, I'm Walid Vayikra Yaqib Mubshah Habu. And I was a Muslim. And now I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. That's a great miracle, friend. They're not living in Henrietta. I know Henrietta's crime plagued. I I got that. Fast city. They live in Saudi Arabia. They live in Iraq. They live in Iran. They once were Muslims. They were raised to be Muslims. They were controlled by fear to be a Muslim and remain a Muslim. Their families would disown them for being anything less and their governments will kill them. But they say, I was once a Muslim and now I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Wow. That is a miracle. Verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Yeah, He did choose us before we chose Him. It's hard for us to even wrap our mind around all of that. But I can tell you, just because we were elected before and chosen before the world was ever created, That doesn't mean that He doesn't expect for us to nurture that faith and give ourselves to that faith. Paul talked about don't ever look at the grace of God as a license to sin. He says if it's a really cool thing for God to forgive us, then why don't we just go out and sin a whole bunch and let Him just really show out with His forgiveness. Paul says, God forbid. God forbid. Christians that aren't changed and aren't transformed. 
I can tell you that's a contradictory term. It's a contradiction of ideas. When God touches you, your life is changed. You are transformed. When you become a Christian, this business of, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm kind of a private Christian. What in the world is a private Christian? I say that's one another one of those personalized versions. I wonder what a church full of private Christians would look like. But you wouldn't have to build it very big. <laughs> we don't have anybody here today. It's great to not see all of you. You're private Christians. Today we have a private preacher that's preaching. I'm on a roll here. He's so private, he's not even here. We're going to take a private offering in a minute. It's ridiculous. Let me close today with a question. Are you a Christian? And if you are, how do you know? And if you know, why are you a Christian? Why are you a Christian? If somebody asks you that, I, I want you to think about what you would say. I, I, I know I've used this before, but asking somebody, are you a Christian, should be as simple as asking somebody, are you married? If I walk up to you and your wife and I say, hey, hey, uh, Bill, uh, wondering if you're a Christian and Bill looks at me and goes well I, I, I I'd say I'd say so yeah I, I mean and look at his wife I always look at her I, I, I'd say I'd say we are yeah what if I asked Bill if he were married and he said that I'm going to start backing up because Bill's about to learn a good lesson in marriage I know I'm married. Uh, if you ask me how I know I'm married, I wouldn't tell you, well, I got a certificate in a file cabinet back here that says I am. No, I can tell you. The best way I can explain to you how I know I'm married is I woke up beside her this morning. And I figured this up. I have awakened beside her 14,705 times. Now, Mike Deese and Brenda were married on the same day and the same year and the same month and everything as we were. And I'll bet you've never figured that up, have you, Mike? It's really sad. I actually sound like I'm doing X's on the wall in the cell, don't I? <laughs> I have a relationship with her. Man. It's, it's so crazy. I think about our marriage. I can be gone, and I hate every second of it. But when I'm at home, we might sit there in the living room and not speak for four hours straight. But I'm home. And she's there. 
And that's where I want to be. It's where I want to be. I have a relationship with her. I know her better than anybody in the whole wide world. And man, you talking about knowing me. It's scary. What I'm saying is this. I, I think we have misunderstood Christianity. When you read books like Second Peter, and you hear him talking about the us and them, see, people don't like that in our world today. You know there is a us and a them. There is a us who we are saved and born again Christians, and then there is a them. And the New Testament is full of it. People don't like that. Well, how dare you say something like that? How dare you be so arrogant? I'm not being arrogant at all. I would be one of them if it weren't for him. I would never be part of the us. But there are people out there, they don't believe like we do. They don't understand the Word of God as we do. They don't have a biblical worldview. They don't see the world through the lens that God has given us in His truth. They see it through the maybe the way they were raised or they follow the path of least resistance and, and just whatever feels good. I'm just, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, we are born-again Christians who believe the Word of God and we have been saved and we've given our lives to Christ. So don't ever expect us to look at you and go, hey, your cousin who is gay, we think that is okay. It's not going to happen. If you're living with your girlfriend and you're not married, don't expect us to say that's all right. It doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean we don't fail God every single day. But if you are living in adultery, don't ever look at us and expect us to say, hey, that is okay. Our world so misunderstands Christianity. I'll close with something I saw this week, and I'll cover it quickly, but it was so interesting. There was a congresswoman in Washington this week that went to a prayer breakfast. As a matter of fact, she was one of the speakers at the prayer breakfast. And she was almost late, and she apologized for being late. She said, when I went to get out of bed, my boyfriend grabbed me and pulled me back in. And I told him, we don't have time for that. I got to be somewhere. But she told the prayer breakfast audience, she said, but I'll see him after a while. He can wait. Now, she did get criticized over that. But this is what she said. She said, I don't go to church because I'm a saint. I go because I'm a sinner. That's pretty clever. And she says, me and pastor, and she named his name because I think he was in the audience. I'm sure we'll have something to talk about this week. And they all chuckled. <laughs> Do you see how far we have drifted? I'm not telling you that because that is just a catastrophic sin. Oh, Lord, there's nothing in the world worse than that. I'm not saying, I'm not telling you that because that, it is the casual attitude toward all of it. Even the pastors who were standing there chuckled with her. And she laughed about it. 
I don't think we understand what being a Christian is, friend. Let's help the world understand it. And let's try to reach them with the gospel. But if they do die lost and go to hell, let's make sure it is not because they didn't know the difference. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you and we ask you, please help us, God. We fail you miserably. We preach far better than we live, God. We talk a way better talk than sometimes we act. And God, we're in no position to judge any person. But Lord, we know that you have told us what is right and what is wrong. And Lord, we know when we fail in that. We ourselves, God, we can't compromise or condone it or treat it as something trivial, Lord. We have to beg for your precious, undeserved mercy and grace. I pray you'd help us, though, Lord. As we stand up and say we're Christians, I pray, God, that you'll help us especially as we go through this book of your word, that you would teach us, Lord. Teach us, God, how to communicate what it means to say, yes, I am a Christian. I belong to Jesus. My life belongs to him. All I have is his, and I will live and die for him. Help us, Lord, to know how to say it. And then, God, please help us as we try to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you have any questions or would like to know more about Cornerstone, please visit our website at servantsway.com or email us at office at servantsway.com. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 1186 Hudlow Road, Forest City, North Carolina. Please join us again next week.